And I'd like to read one more, one more um, passage that I think would really go well with this new series that we're starting. And this new series um, is going to be for the next seven or eight weeks. And it's been something that's been on my heart for the last two weeks to talk about. And this has just been about pursuing the life of Christ, pursuing Christ's life. And what does that mean to be pursuing the life of Christ and what it means to be pursued by Christ? And so if you want to turn to 1 John with me, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And I want to read verses 1. Pastor Adam read John chapter 1, 1 through 14. I just want to read the first couple verses of John, 1 John, the first epistle of John, which is right next to Revelation in your Bible. Um, verse 1. And that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we have declared to you, that you also may be fellowship, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things are written that your joy may be full. And I was just thinking like about this, the, the life of Christ and what is John the Apostle talking about here? This is written uh, several decades right after he, um, well, he's during this time when he's writing First John and when he's writing the, the Gospel of John was a very interesting time in the new church but when we look at the book of John and the Gospels, the four Gospels, we really see a portrait of the life of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, it's very easy to be a church, to be a family, to be people, to be a pastor or to be someone in ministry and, and just digress from focusing on the, the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. And when we say Christianity, really, this is a worship of Christ. Now, this may sound pretty elementary to you, but today there is worship of so many things. There's so much focus on things that are not Christ-centered, and it's so easy to get distracted in our, in our faith. And so what my desire really is this week is that we would just, that this, these next few weeks is that we would just really focus on Jesus Christ, look at him, and just kind of take a look at Christ through the Gospel of John. So um, when we, so if you turn with me to John chapter 1, I just want to look at a couple things in these first few verses and uh, look at this together. Because it's really Jesus Christ is the only one that can change a person's life, right? Jesus Christ is the only one that can open the eyes of people. Jesus Christ is really the only one that has power over demons and over principalities and powers. Jesus Christ is really our Savior, our brother, and he is, our, he is our redeemer. And in the Christian calendar, and I'm not sure if you know this or not, but um, in some very traditional cultures, uh, in the Christian calendar, there's a period of time called Epiphany. Uh, there is the Advent, which is the birth of Christ, and then there's the Ascension of Christ. But between the Ascension and the Advent, there's this time which is celebrated sometimes in the winter, during the dark months called Epiphany. And this actually means um, a revelation of the life of Christ, a full revelation. Epi speaks of the word in the Greek fully, and it's a full revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that this is what really, 
what we desire. This is what we seek for. This is what we, this is what our hunger is for, that we would see Christ. Remember the Gentile Greeks that came to Jesus, came to the disciples and said, we would see Jesus. And I was thinking about that. That is just our heart cry. That is something that whether we realize it or not, all of our desires are based on seeing Christ. And if we don't see him, if we don't observe him, if we're not seeing him in our marriage, if we're not seeing him in our family, if we're not seeing him in our business, if we're not finding Christ in our personal time, what can happen is that we could walk around empty and our soul becomes like a vacuum and it begins to suck in everything in the world that just never satisfies. Ask anybody that's ever spent any time in the world, is it satisfying? No. It's just a repetitive cycle where we just keep going back to the well in John chapter 4, like the woman at the well kept going every day and to fill her bucket. And that's the way it is, can be in the world if our focus as a believer and our joy is not Jesus Christ. And so in these first 14 verses that Pastor Adam read in John chapter 1, we see three things. Number one, there's a claim. There's a claim that Jesus is something or someone. Number two, there is a widespread rejection of that claim, verses 5 to 11. And then from verses 12, 13, and 14, gives us an answer to those objections and why the claim is rejected. And so the first thing we want to look at is really three things, is that Jesus Christ here, and also John, the, the Gospel of John, is stating that Jesus Christ is the Logos. And what does Logos mean? What does that word Logos mean? Greek philosophers looked at nature, and I want to just do a little teaching here, so just stay with me. Uh, Greek philosophers looked at nature, and by the way, Greeks were the, the Greeks were the ones that were the audience. The Greeks and the Jews were the audience of these Gospels. Some of the, the book of Matthew, the audience of the book of Matthew were Jews. Uh, the audience of the book of Luke were Gentiles, like Romans. Mark was written to Roman, the Roman mindset. And the book of John was really written to, and this, was, this book, the Gospel of John, was written a little later than the other Gospels. And this was really a Gospel that was declaring the deity and the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Logos in the Greek mind was this, that in, in the Greek philosophy, they looked at nature and they saw a balance. They saw an order. They saw harmony. And they believed that behind all this order, the world that we live in, uh, the cycles of nature, uh, the way nature is, the seasons, the continual rise and setting of the sun, there was this order that was a order that was in some way set in place by what was quote-unquote a cosmic principle that was behind all of it, which is big words and it sounds really big, but it was a, it was a principle that they saw in order, but they did not know the architect. They did not know the person. They did not who, know who created this. And we're in a day and age today where there has been a general rejection of the nature and the characteristic and the reality of God in our culture, in our nature, and in the world that we live in. So much so that this place that God takes or that God dwells in, the person's, in a person's life is left empty. And so there is, this, there is this cosmic loneliness. There is this separation. There is this, if you will, spiritual separation anxiety where we as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a nation and as the humanity are living without, this, without, the, without the, the filling and the communion of the creator who is Jesus Christ. And because of that, there is this loneliness, there is this emptiness. And so as the world, as a, as, a, as, a, as a global culture, 
people are looking for that companion, that fellowship, that presence. And so you know how, how, you know how, it, ha- how it has resulted? One of the ways is, is that people are looking for aliens. People are looking for, are we alone in the universe? You ever hear that question? And this has been something that's been going on for decades. Are we alone in the universe? And the answer to that is no, we are not. Because we have Christ, Jesus Christ. We have the heavenly host. We have God the Father. We have the Holy Spirit. And people start looking for a personality, an intellect, something that is smarter. And notice that when they're looking for these supernatural, well, now there's a revival of this of this um, supernatural mythology. And we can see this in the Marvel characters that we see in the movies today. The revival of all of like these old um, these old characters like Batman and Superman and all of these characters, Wonder Woman. And if you look at it carefully, all of these, and, and this is done on purpose, all of these characters, all of this mythological, these, these characters that you see on TV today really represent some kind of a mythological entity that existed all the way back to the Babylonian times, all the way back to the time of the flood. And these are, these, are, these are personalities, these are superheroes that existed and that, that, that world mythology has patterned after these, these characters from Babylonian to, to um, all the way down through um, Greek and, and then Roman and then today in our, in our, in our American culture. And that these, that these superheroes that we are worshiping, that we are watching, that we're paying money to watch, to look at, um, actually are gods that are very, very old gods, and they are, they are idols, and they are actually demonic. They're very demonic. And, and so people live in this sense of emptiness, and they're trying to repl- replace this emptiness um, with the sense of, okay, there's aliens out there, or there's gods, or these you know, supernatural creatures that live in the world that we don't know about. Why do people do that? Because we as people are looking for something or someone that is smarter than us, that is more talented than us, that's more powerful than us, and someone that knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's why people go to see psychics, right? They go to see a psychic, right? You know, to go and see a psychic. Okay, tell me what's going on. Tell me my future, you know? And they can't tell you more about your future than, than anyone else. There may be, they might, you know, horoscopes in in the newspapers or I don't know if people read newspapers anymore but horoscopes really made a lot of their money based on saying general things that everybody seeks for happiness companionship success and um, significance right and so people live without God without fellowship with God without knowing Jesus Christ and they live in this sense of spiritual absence are you following me that happens in Christianity that happens in church it happens in churches all across the world today, is that maybe some people will go to church and they'll never hear about the name of Christ. They'll see some incredible programs. They're going to see some incredible humanitarian things. They're going to see some incredible maybe intellectual speeches or maybe even psychological or maybe even some kind of sensational action that happens during the service. But how many um, churches today, and I'm sure that they're out there and they are out there, are really going to be focusing on Jesus Christ, the person in the nature of the very image of God. My brother said this last week, last Sunday, in Hebrews chapter 1, and it just stuck with me all week about how Christ is the image of God and that, this, that the Christ is the very image of God and that if he's the image of God, then that's the glory of God and that Christ is the glory of God. In the Old Testament, you see Moses and great men of God looking 
They're like, I want to see your glory. And have you prayed that prayer before? I want to see the glory of God, right? I want to see his glory manifested in my problems, in my needs, in my difficulties. And so Moses prayed that prayer, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't see my glory. But what I'll do is I'm going to put you in a cave in a rock, and I'm going to shelter you there. And as I pass by you, I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then as I pass by, I'm going to take my hand away, and you're going to be able to look at my back parts, my back what does that mean? It means that the back parts of God, that part of us that we can get to, that we get to observe is the glory of God. It is Jesus Christ. It is the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. And that's why when, when Jacob saw, saw in, in, in when he wrestled with the angel, he said, I have seen the glory of God. I did not even know it. And this is a, this is a phenomenal, sensational place. And he, he built an altar there. So for us to see God today is not necessarily in something sensational, although God may be in it. To see God today may not be in something that is very flamboyant or something that's very psychological or something very intellectual or something that's very artistic. God may be in those things, but to see God today is to see Christ and to look at him in the Gospels. And I would say that in all of our pursuits in our Christianity that we would go back to the Gospels. Go back to the Gospels. Read the book of Mark. Just sit down and read it. Or read the book of Luke. I love the prayer life of Christ in the book of Luke. And just look at Jesus and fall in love with Jesus again. And it's my prayer these next seven weeks is that we would look at Christ here, that we would fall in love with him again, and not fall in love with him with our own love, but that we would respond to his love towards us. And the title of this series is Pursuing Christ, but I think another way, I think we probably should put a subtitle there, Christ Pursuing Us, Christ Chasing After Us. And that's what I want to talk about. Logos in the Greek mind was this, was this whole order, was this whole, uh, was this whole principle that stood behind all the harmony, the, the order of things, that there was this, that the Logos was a blueprint. Before you build a house, you have, to, you have to have a blueprint. The Logos was a word in the Greek mind that described the blueprint behind it all, right? It is the, it is the instruction manual. It is, it, is the, it is the official word and the official statement of what is that. For example, you buy, um, I bought a generator two years, uh, was it two years ago? Just before we had that big thing, that big freeze, remember in, in February and nobody had power for two weeks? Well, we had just been, we had just so happened to be in Costco and there were all these generators for sale. You know, like I know there were, some of them were for like $1,100, but they were being sold for like $699, $699. And so I bought one. I'm bringing it home. I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to need this. Two weeks later, right, we're plugging it in. <laughs> we're plugging it in and we're using it. And it powered some of our house. But before I used it, I had someone tell me, you've really got to read the instruction manual there because if you don't read the instruction manual, then you could blow your house up because it, th- it, it worked on LP... Um, I don't know how we call it in the States, uh, LP, um, uh, natural gas, and um, gas that you buy at the gas station. Okay, I'm not a technical person, so that's how I call those things. And if you don't hook it up right, it could actually blow up in flames. So when you open the box up, there's all these warning signs that, that are just like, be careful, make sure you understand what you're doing. This is what this is for. This is what you, this is not for. You can't have it running in your garage. You can't have it you know, there's a lot of things. And so the Logos is really that instruction. It's that written word of what is this generator or what is this, who is Christ? What is his purpose? 
And what is he all about? This is the written word. And this is the, this is the Bible. For us, the Logos, the Christian, this is the Logos. This is the word of God. And the Logos is the written criteria for our faith. Does that make sense? And so because it's the written criteria of our faith, it is something that really should be our focus. It is the written. There's another word in the Greek for, Greek, for word, and that's rhema. And I want to look at that at another time. But Logos is really the absolute truth about our universe, the absolute truth about marriage, the absolute truth about purity. It's the absolute truth about the nature and the character of God's faithfulness to you. The, the, the Logos is the description of how God functions in your life when you don't even know God. How many of you in this room have ever had God do things in your life and you don't even know who he is? It's really amazing, isn't it? And so the Logos is that description. And so in the Greek mind, the Greeks were thinking that there's really, there was two schools of thought about what is the Logos? What is this, what is this, um, this, this whole blueprint for the world that we live in? And there was two schools of thought, and they may sound familiar to you. The first school of thought was the Stoics. The Stoics were a group of individuals, a particular school of Greek, that they believed that for you to understand the universe that you're living in and for you to live happy life and for you to discover your purpose and for you to align yourself with this this world's ultimate reality is that you had to accept everything that happened to you and not question it no matter how bad it is it's kind of like this philosophy in french they say say la vie that's life it is what it is we say these days right it's this kind of thinking that like um you just you just have to accept it and you can't let it get under your skin and you just have to like control yourself live in self-control to the point of self-destruction or self-harm or um and and that and that everything happens for a reason but we don't know what the reason is very abstract isn't it and this is what can happen in religion people have to have this disciplined approach to this like okay um i'm having a very hard time right now i don't know how to make heads or tail out of it and i don't know the god behind the situation i don't know the god behind the purpose and i don't know the god behind why is my body functioning like this or why is this happening in my finances or why is this happening in my mind and so this stoic kind of thinking is this disciplined just press forward hard work let's not get emotional no drama this is like the world that i lived in i grew up in in new england it's very stoic up there and it's cold and it's um you know like um you can't you can't you can't be hurt you know life is not you can't really have a lot because life is tough and it's just this very disciplined type and this is this has kind of seeped into christianity this is one way that people look the greeks looked at the world that they lived in a very stoic way it is what it is don't complain just push forward okay the other school of thought was epicurean and this is this was epicurean was today uh, today is probably the more popular way of thinking epicurean really means that we exist to enjoy my life as much as possible to get out of my life to get out of this world everything that i can get out of it for my own personal benefit epicurean is like this eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die right it's this kind of thinking that i deserve so much and no one has the right to take that away from me. And actually, that's the culture that we live in today. They will say to you, you deserve better, or you don't deserve to be in that situation. Treat yourself 
um, treat yourself with special self-care so you don't have to be in this difficult situation because you only live once. Get out of that circumstance, get out of that relationship, get out of that marriage, get out of this job or get out of this, get out of the town or, or whatever. Get out of your circumstance so that you can live your life and, and enjoy yourself. And this is this Epicurean, this is this Epicurean way of thinking. And it's a kind of, and this also has come into the church in the form as prosperity, meaning that if you're not prospering, or if you're a Stoic and you're not self-disciplined, you're not living in this in this self-destructive self-discipline. Are you following me? Am I going over your head? Maybe I am. If you're not living in this self self-discipline that is so that is so serious, like maybe athletes go through this with um, that are that are training for professional. Olympics or professional sports they are they're beating their body as Paul said into subjection uh, the ep- epicurean kind of thinking is um, you live for yourself just do it and this kind of thinking becomes actually a law in our culture that we live in for example if you're not killing yourself in some way for some self-disciplined goal which is to the point of just like where you're hurting yourself then um you're not, you're not going to understand, you're not going to live in harmony with your purpose, you're not going to live understanding the purpose of your life, and you're really just, you know, you're not disciplined, you're not working, and so um, you're a loser. The other kind of thinking is Epicurean. If you're not prospering, if you're not living your life to the fullest, if in some way you're sick, or if something's wrong with your finances, or if there's, if, if you're not, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're not shining with prosperity and, and just continual wealth and happiness, as you can see on Facebook or on social media, then there's something wrong with you. And you're not functioning in your purpose as a, cre- as a, cre- as a creature. You're not functioning in what you should be. And that's the way, this is the two schools of thought in this world that, that is really from Greek culture. Live, live great, pursuit of happiness, or live in self-discipline to the point where you're sacrificing yourself and everything that you want for your kids or for somebody else. Both of these, both of these schools of thought are trying to understand what is this world I'm living in, what is the purpose of my life, and how can I sense, how can I live in fulfillment and feel good about myself? Both of these schools of thought fall short. Both of these schools of thought lead to a sense of elitism like you know okay i'm prospering life is awesome and so i'm part of the chosen few of the people that get to enjoy life in abundance and anybody that doesn't think like me that anybody that's not prospering doesn't get to be part of my clique does that make sense yes no (laughs) it's in christianity it's in religion like you could i mean if, if you're not like if you're going through a hard time with your health or finances or in your personal life or in your relationships and things are not prospering then then this kind of philosophy would people that are living in this philosophy will look at you and say what is wrong with you like get your act together you know you there must be sin in your life right or the other the other direction is this is that stoic like like you can't absolutely enjoy anything that there's no blessing in your life that if there's, if there's any kind of blessing in your life or extra or abundance, then that's the flesh. Something's wrong. And, then, and, and you can't enjoy it. And, the, and, that's, the, and that's the, you know, that's stoic thinking. But you know something? It's very easy for a person to be poor 
and really broke, but very proud. Did you ever meet those kind of people? Like when you've done a homeless, I've done a homeless ministry quite a bit, and I've never met, some of the most proudest people I've ever met are people that are living on the street. Now that sounds really like a paradox, doesn't it? But they're living on, some of them are living on the street, and they're, and they're like, they're, they're dumping on the world, they're dumping on the system, everybody's wrong, nobody understands them. And then, you know, and then when you present them opportunity, no. Like, that's beneath me. And so there's this kind of pride that is either in, that is in stoic thinking, hyper, um, hyper-religious thinking, and there's also this, this, um, this, this self-righteousness that can be in prosperity. I am I'm prospering, and so I must be doing okay with God. And so these two types of thinking when people are trying to figure out who they are and what their purpose is in the world, can actually lead a person to a, think, to a place of elitism. Like, you know what? I'm poor. I'm broke. Um, I don't have all this stuff. So therefore, I'm spiritual. I'm better than these other guys who are like these selfish, self-gratifying people over here that are living in prosperity. And, you know, they're, you know, they're, and it's, it's, it's a system. It's a double, it's a, it's a two-headed system that devours itself. And both of, those, both of those kinds of philosophies lead to two things. They, they lead to self-righteousness and it leads to oppression. Are you guys following me? I, <laughs> it leads to oppression. And what does that mean? Okay, so if I'm stoic, if I'm hyper-spiritual, um, poverty mindset, it's not God's will for me to be blessed. That's all, you know, that's all sin. Then that, will, that kind of thinking, that kind of hyper-religiosity can lead me to a place where I am being oppressed myself. I'm under this oppression, right? Like, man, I would just really like to have a toothbrush. Nope. (laughs) You can have like a toothbrush that's like old and crusty, but you can't have a nice toothbrush. And it's like you live with this kind of mindset like, like, you know, oh, maybe I don't deserve that. Or maybe, maybe God doesn't love me. Or, and then you start feeling crushed and oppressed by your own thinking, right? And those of us that live under this oppression under this false understanding of who God is and who the logos is, we're going to look at in a second, there's this oppression that comes into our soul, right? It presses us down. And what does that do? It causes us to oppress others. If that's my mindset about God, and it was at one point when I was a younger Christian, that can lead us to oppressing other people, right? The very law that I'm conforming to now I have to lay on everybody else that's having liberty. Here's an example, okay? And, and just bear with me, but do you remember during the pandemic? Are we still in the pandemic or not? I don't know. But during that time, there was this mask thing, right? Everybody had to wear masks. Remember that? And thank God we were in Montgomery County, so we didn't really feel it that much. But whenever I left Texas, I felt like, you know, I just could feel it. But there are these people. You go to a store, you go to a grocery store, and they're all masked up, right? And there's like... They're, <laughs> I'll never forget, I was in Whole Foods, and there was this one woman, she had like two or three masks right over, like, and then she had like a shield over her, she had plastic, she had like rubber gloves and long sleeves, and, um, and so I'm not extremely compliant, I'm not that kind of a person, and so I'd be in this store, and I just couldn't breathe with this mask, and so I just kind of like let it slip down a little bit, and, or, you know, and so this, this woman was like following me around and just like, just yelling at me like, you've got to put your mask on, you know, like you're, you're endangering everybody in this store. And, and, and so, you know, I don't know if any of you have been in that situation, but I was. 
And I just remember thinking, I remember seeing how unhappy that woman was and how stressed and oppressed she was. She was just, and that she, she was such a compliant person to what she thought was supposed to be being done is that she had no joy. And anybody that had any freedom or any joy in that store was going to get attacked by the compliant one. Does that make sense? And so, and so I just remember observing her. You know, I said, okay. And so I put my mask on. And I just remember observing like she had no joy. When we live in this kind of hyper-religious understanding of like thinking, okay, Jesus you know, for me to discover my purpose in this universe or in this world, I need to be super compliant and I just have to like live in this religious um, religiosity. And when we start thinking that way, when we see someone that's not living in that law, that's not living in this kind of thinking, guess what happens? Something irks us, doesn't it? Right? Maybe there's some of us in the room that were irked by that. I'm not, but maybe somebody is and they're irked like, you know, well, you know, I got to do it. Why can't they do it? And so we become the oppressor. We become the, we become the person that begins to press down on other people, things that they got to be doing because I have to do it too. And I'm so miserable and everybody else has got to be miserable. This can happen in religion. This can happen in Christianity. This is not Christ. The other side is, is like I'm prospering and things are going great. And, and anybody that's not prospering and anybody that's not in, that has any level of, of need on a, on, a, on a continual basis just doesn't know God or just doesn't know, you know, there can be things that we are suffering um, poor or suffering things in our life because of poor decisions, right? And the Lord wants us to change that. We, God wants us to put things in order in our life. But I think that when someone is living, when we see someone that's suffering or they're living in a lack, and I think if we're living in this prosperity kind of mentality or they're not spiritual, they have not arrived yet, then we are, we're think, we're, we are elitists. Okay, does that make sense? And so both philosophies lead to elitism and it also leads to oppression. And then we read John chapter one, we read, here is the earthquake. Here is the earthquake of, this, of, the, of the whole universe. And that is, um, that Jesus Christ in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Logos is here in John chapter 1, verses, the first couple of verses. This Logos, the unknown person behind the whole system, the, whole, the unknown person behind the whole blueprint, is, that the, is, is not an entity. It's, it's a person. It's a person. And it's a person that does not have, have you go through a system to get to him but it's a person that desires you, that seeks you out, that calls you by name, that loves you, that died for you, that dearly, that deeply desires to have communion with you and I. And this is Jesus Christ. And what can happen is, is that sometimes when, when, when people get into these, um, these philosophies that are, that are um, either Stoic or, or Epicurean, what can happen is, is that there can be um, this whole sense of, of self-righteousness. And I want to just hit this for a second before we go to um, verse, verse 11. In the 50s and the 60s, when my dad was growing up, um, the bad guys, the people that were not compliant to the whole world, to the whole order, um, the people that wanted to kill us, to blow us up, were who? Who were they? The communists, right? The Russians, the commies. They were the bad guys. They, wanted to, they, wanted, they were the people that, were, that wanted to kill us. Today, who are those people? Who are the bad guys? Who are the people that want to blow us up? Who are the people that um, on, a, on a global scale 
are being targeted as the bad guys that have, that have mal-interest and that want to hurt society. Who are they? The radical Christians <laughs> that believe in absolute truth, that believe there's a logos, that believe that there's a blueprint that is very clear in the Bible, that things are very, very clear. And that for us, our morality and our faith is not relative. Do you know what that means? Relative means like, well, you know, today you could ask a young person, well, you know, do you believe in absolute truth? Absolutely not. Everybody has to find their own truth. They have to find their own way. And what they decide is truth is truth for them. For example, I, somebody could say, well, um, you believe in UFOs. I don't because that doesn't pay my electric bill, right? So somebody may believe in something and we're supposed to celebrate everybody's belief no matter how random it is. But the Logos, the Word of God, tells us that there's a creator, that there's a God, and he loves us, and that God created this world for you and I, for us to enjoy, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to grow. And what can happen is, is that, that if we don't understand that, if we don't understand that there's an absolute, that there's, this is the Word of God, and I'm coming to a practical point here, if we don't understand that this is the blueprint for the world that I live in, then we're going to walk around lost, we're going to walk around not understanding our purpose, we're not going to understand our calling, and we're not going to understand what is true happiness. John here, in verse 12, brings in the gospel. And let's read that, verse, verse 12 of chapter 1. But as many as received him, to, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. What is Jesus saying here? What is, what is John saying here? He's saying that to understand our purpose, to understand fulfillment, to understand the world that we live in, to understand our eternal purpose is not through stoicism where I have to follow a a, a set of just um, um, uh, self-disciplines or or it's not going through this uh, sense of, of living for myself to make myself happy, walking through these stages where I can feel like, okay, if I've arrived, I have this status in my life, and I've arrived, now I can be happy. But what, Paul, what, what John is saying here is, is that power, authority, the ability to rule in this life, the sense of fulfillment, the sense of significance comes through a gift. It's the gift of the grace of God that whosoever believes will become children of God, period. There's nothing to add to that. And yet, I don't know why, but for some reason in our society, we put all of these rules and these laws. Well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but really, yeah, <laughs> for you to be blessed in your life, you've got to meet all these, you gotta meet all these standards. And we do that naturally because that's the flesh. The flesh is all about programs, right? Give me a program so I can feel better about myself. I think in the Catholic Church, there's this, you know, when you sin and you go see the priest, they're going to give you, they're going to give you a set of things that you have to do. Hail Marys and um, our fathers, right? And I think there's something that our flesh really likes about that. Like, if I can hit all of those, then I'm forgiven. How about this? There's nothing that you can do to make, to make you feel forgiven or be more forgiven than you already are. You're forgiven. You're forgiven, whether you believe that or not. Jesus Christ paid for your sins. And if you and I believe on that, then we are righteous. 
we are just as righteous as Jesus Christ is. And that sounds, wait, whoa, whoa, you can't say that. That's blasphemous. Well, Christ in us is the hope of glory. He's the son of God. He is the righteous one. He is in us and we have that righteousness. And if you and I have believed on Jesus Christ as our personal savior, then we have that righteousness in us. And it doesn't mean that sometimes when I feel bad, I can't pray and ask God for the impossible. As a matter of fact, when you and I feel the worst, like when we feel like we're not, you know, we're not making the cut and we're not there and we feel maybe like society is like looking down at us or we're just, we're just not, we don't feel like that we're there, that's the moment we need to ask God. That's the moment of grace. Why is that? Because the grace of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God wants to bless us when we feel the least um, worthy of that. Do you know why? Because that's what grace is. Grace is most glorified when it can be poured out into the, to the deepest sinner, to the deepest brokenness. That is the glorious gospel. And Jesus came to show us that. And this is, this is the gift of grace. And here's the next verse here. And, um, and it says here in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this is, of he, this is he of whom I have said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. Look at verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received. There's nothing that God's held back. When God gave you his salvation, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you 50%. See how you do with that. Then I'm going to give you another 25%. And then when you're really perfect, you get the whole package. No, God gave us the whole package of his fullness of who he is we have received and grace for grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Does that mean I live in sin? No, it just means that when I look at the sin in my life and I'm so, I'm like, I'm stoic or I'm, or I'm over here in Epicurean thinking, I'm like, God, I'm a mess. But you know what God says? I'm going to pour out on you favor because I love you. And I want you to think that way. And get out of the poor mind, get out of the poverty thinking set. You know, like, oh, I don't qualify. I got to do. We all suffer that. I do, all of us in this room. God wants to pour out his grace upon us. And when he can pour out his grace upon his people, then he's glorified. And it says grace for grace upon grace, grace after grace. And Kenneth Wiest, in his beautiful commentary, says that it's like a picture of the, of the sea coming up and washing the sand, wave after wave after wave. And, it, and, it's, and it's cleaning the sand, and it's, and it's just, you know, the footprints and the sandcastles and and everything that is there gets washed away and it's smoothed by the wave, waves of grace, grace upon grace. And Lord, God, you've given me so much grace. When is it going to end? Because sometimes we think, well, can't go, like, can't go on like this forever. That is just wrong thinking. Grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. And this is where I want to finish here um, is... No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has he declared him. That means that the Son of God was the object and the center of all the love and joy and pride of the Trinity. Like you, when, you, when you look at a family, right? And I know that many of you in this room have kids that are growing up that are, that are accomplishing some great things that are on, on track to, to grow and to some, you know, we desire to see them succeed. And we're so proud of them, right? My son just got his, his yellow, his orange belt at Taekwondo this week, you know? And I was so proud of him, you know? And because 
we have this relationship because the Father has this relationship with Christ. We are in Christ. Is God loving upon us? Is God proud of us? Does the, does the Lord talk to the devil about you? Hey, have you seen my servant so-and-so over here? Have you seen him? I just want to rub this in your face, Satan, because he's a trophy of grace and he's a trophy of righteousness. And I just want you to know, Lucifer, Satan, that, 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 that this is my prize. This is, I'm, I'm really proud of him. And the Lord does that. I think the Lord does that a lot more than we think he does. Right? Have you seen my servant? And we're in Christ. These two philosophies, Stoicism or Epicureanism, is a system where we try to find purpose, meaning, and happiness outside of a relationship with God. The Logos came. And what does the Logos want? He's the blueprint. He's the word of God. He's the incarnation of God. And what does he want? He wants a relationship. He wants fellowship. And it says here in John chapter 1 that he came and he tabernacled among us. He was among us. He lived among us. And that word in the King James is used tabernacled. And what it means is this. I'm going to finish this with this. Is that, is that he dwelt among us. And the word tabernacle represented for the Old Testament mind and for the ancient, ancient pagan mind, that's where the building God lives. And there's this distance between you and God, obviously. So you need to leave all your worldly stuff. You need to leave your job, you need to leave your house, everything, and go to the building. And in the building, there's all these priests and all these people doing all this service so that you can feel better about yourself, so that you can have contact with God, right? And we go there and we see all this stuff going on. And it's actually kind of, you know, if you lived in Europe, if you've been in Europe, I've, I lived in Europe. I remember going to some of these incredibly beautiful buildings that were built like in 1400 incredible old old building and there's this sense in there you walk in the building and there's this there is this ambience of of something and it says that God came and tabernacled among us and so people would go to these buildings these temples to feel like that God they were with God that they had fellowship with God that they had contact with God and then they'd walk away and they'd feel justified there was this gap and inside of the tabernacle these priests and these these individuals trying to bridge the gap between you and God. I'm going to say a prayer for you, brother. I'm going to say a prayer for you, sister. I'm going to light a candle for you. Jesus does all of that. And Jesus now is our intermediator. He is our, he is our, he is our mediator between him and us and God. And he is now our tabernacle. And he lives among us. And like Pastor Adam said today, he said, if there's two or more that are gathered, then Jesus is tabernacling there among us. And I was thinking, you know, as a pastor coming to church and you know, there's, uh, you know there's, there's, there's desires and prayers and things I'd like to see happen in our church. But in the end, my expectation is not like, you know, okay, someone can't come or someone can't. Uh, that doesn't throw me off. That doesn't ruin my day. Maybe it would for some others. But for me, my expectation and my greatest joy is that Christ would be in our midst and that we could tabernacle with him and that we could break bread with him. Amen that we could share each other our testimony, that we could, we could pray for each other, that we could say, brother, sister, I'm with you. Here's a promise. Here's a Bible verse. Or here's a worship song that's been really ministering to my heart. That's when Christ tabernacles among us. That's what we truly desire. And Christ tabernacles among us. And it's not like an employee-employer relationship that says, you know what? You're in on the game as long as you can perform, as long as you are cost-effective, as long as you can pull your own weight and that you're not a burden for the company right? And that's business. That's the way it works in the world, right? Employee, employer relationship. But with God, it's not that way because God has already made it very clear 
that there's no way that you could have ever pulled your own weight. There's no way that you could have ever obeyed every 10 commandment, that you could have ever been perfectly righteous for me to pour out my grace and my mercy upon you, that there is absolutely nothing that you could do to improve your state today, that therefore Christ came and he lived and he dwelt among us. Do you know why Christ was guilty and why he was crucified in the eyes of the Pharisees? Yes, because he claimed he was God, but also one other thing, he was guilty by association, right? Oh, you were with those people, so therefore you're, you're, you're party to their, to their sin and their, and their culture, and like Jesus was with prostitutes, and he's with sinners and publicans and tax collectors, and how can this man be our savior for Israel? Because we're so religious, we're so stoic. Jesus didn't even meet their standards, and yet Christ dwelt among us, and he is our tabernacle, and so he is full of grace and truth. And that's what we want to draw near to. That's what we want to fellowship with. And that's the Christ that we want to worship. When we look at this universe and we look at the way animals are, sometimes like I just look at my dog and I'm just thinking, this dog is just like loving life, you know? Like, it's just, I'm worried about this and that. And my dogs were, you know, just enjoying just being, being petted. Like this, this world that we live in has just this very simple order and this very simple harmony. And God has created us that we would know him, that we'd walk with him, that we'd hear his voice, that we'd read his word, that we'd have communion, that we'd have prayer, that we'd make decisions for God's order in our life according to his blueprint. And by the way, Psalm chapter one, when you and I walk, not in the way of the wicked or in the way of the sinner, we don't walk in the way of the mocker or the gossiper. When we walk in decisions to the best we can for Christ and for his word, then there's a blessing in my life and I'm walking with him. And he tabernacles with us. Don't get weary when making decisions. Don't get weary in well-doing. And don't get distracted by those that are living in prosperity and legislating it on everybody else. Or those that are living, that seem to be living this super ultra-holy lives that, that, just, that they themselves can't even live up to. Because those, that can be very oppressing. But draw near to Christ. Listen to his word. Listen to him speak. Speak to you in your prayer closet. Let him speak to you when you open the word. Make time for him. Draw near to Jesus Christ. Sit down with him in Matthew Matthew chapter 10. Go to your prayer closet. Draw near to him. Open the word. Read it out loud sometimes when you're by yourself. Let the blueprint be blueprinted in in your soul because the blueprint in Acts 20 verse 32 is the word of grace. And it's the word of grace that builds us up and it gives us an inheritance. Builds us up. I'm not living under stoicism and it, and it gives me an inheritance. I'm not living, chasing prosperity because I'm happy. I'm very prosperous. Amen. Mm-hmm.